If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ted? Yeah. Ted? Damn. Hello, and welcome back to our latest installment of Eye for an Eye. We are your hosts, Julia, Lisa, and Matt. And we are here to determine whether the punishment, or lack thereof, fits the crime. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. And here we go! We're back! It's Eye for Eye Podcast. <laughs> here we go. I am your host, Lisa, and I am here with my wondrous, beautiful, legendary co-hosts, Matt and Jules. What's up? Hey, y'all. What up, what up, what up? We are coming to you live from Jules. Live from delirium. Like, absolutely, there's something wrong. Oh, it's been Live from Jules' house. It's Saturday night. No, it's Ivory Pod. It's Ivory Pod. That's really cool. Johnny, bring him in. Um, But today we have a really cool case for y'all. So sit back, relax. Whatever you do while you listen to us, we want to hear about it. Let us know. What are, where are, you, what are you doing? In, are you walking your dog? Or... On the treadmill? Are you driving to work? Heading into tonight's case, Joel's about to take us on a ride. I'm taking you on a ride. And it is a ride. Let's do it. Made a roller coaster. We're going east, y'all, to east. the other side of the state. We are recording outside of Pittsburgh, but this is a Philly case. Oh. I am from Philadelphia, and so when I'm Christmas, I hit up my fam and i was like give me all of your true crime cases and so this came out of discussion we're talking today about marino which to be completely honest was a name i did not know for this she was born on august 23rd 1928 in the kensington neighborhood of philadelphia between pennsylvania and new jersey is the delaware river marie was one of several children born into an unpleasant home life as her parents were not happy and Honestly, like unhappiness um, is contagious, I feel. Her parents were not happy. The children were not happy. You know, it was just a bad situation. When she was five, Marie had scarlet fever, and she said that this caused learning difficulties that she experienced throughout her life. She would later be forced to drop out of school to help care for her family. Again, another kind of recipe for disaster. Marie met her future husband. Arthur Allen No at a private club in West Kensington. In June of 1948, after just a few months of dating, the couple eloped. They went on to have 10 children, y'all. All of whom damn. All of whom died between the ages of five days and 14 months. I'm gonna give us a quick recap 
of the children, and then I'm going to go into them a little bit further. The first was Richard Allen No, and he was born on March 7th of 1949 and died April 7th of 1949. So just a little bit, just a month there. Elizabeth Mary No was the next child. She was born on September 8th of 1950, and she passed away on February 17th of 1951. Jacqueline No is the next child. She was born April 23rd, 1952, and died May 3rd. 1952. Arthur No Jr. was born April 23rd of 1955 and passed away April 28th, 1955. So that was only five days, which is horrifying. Constance No was born February 24th of 1958 and passed away on March 20th of 1958. Leticia No was a stillborn on August 24th of 1950. Mary Lee No is the next child, born June 19th of 1962 and passed away January 4th of 1963. Teresa No died in the hospital in June of 1963. Catherine Ellen No was born December 3rd of 1964 and passed away February 24th of 1966. Lastly, Arthur Joseph No, born July 28th of 1967, passed away January 2nd of 1968. In 1963, Life magazine published an article with a sympathetic tone. At this point in time, only six of the children had passed away. This was obviously gaining attention because, number one, it's such a large family, and number two, all of the children are dying. If this was just a sad and strange tragedy, the episode would end right here. But alas, it gets worse. It always gets worse. This is another case where... Marie and Arthur No just lived their lives normally for many, many years. The last child died in 1968, and they kind of just went on living. In 1997, a book called The Death of Innocence was published about Winetta Hoyt, who was a New York woman who was convicted of killing all five of her biological children. This book came out in 1997. In April of 1998, an investigative article called Cradle to Grave was published by Stephen Fried in the Philadelphia Magazine. Stephen blew Marie shit up. The no, this is a quote from his article. He said, the no files are remarkably rich. There's also an autopsy report on most of the children. The early ones carry definitive causes of death that any competent pediatric pathologist would now consider unlikely, if not impossible. Most of the later autopsies simply list the cause of death as undetermined. In March of 1998, about a month before the article was published, Stephen turned all of his findings over to the Philadelphia Police Department. They start digging into this further. Because like I said, the last child died in 1968. For about 30 years, Marie is just carrying on with no options. I'm going to jump into um, a little bit more about the, the children. So baby number one as I mentioned, was Richard Allen, and he was born March 7th, 1949. Richard was discovered dead by Arthur when he came home from working the night shift. He was last seen alive by Marie, who was in the room asleep. The cause of death attributed by the coroner was congestive heart failure due to subacute endocarditis, a condition rarely found in children. There was no autopsy done. Baby two was Elizabeth Mary, born September 8th, 1950. Elizabeth was found by Marie vomiting milk mixed with blood, so she then called the police. The cause of death was attributed to bronchopneumonia, 
This finding, which can only be confirmed microscopically, was made without any documented internal examination. The case was briefly investigated by police. An inquest was purportedly held, but no notes are available. We're only on baby number two of 10. And the last person that was around both of those children before they died was Marie. Baby number three was Jacqueline, and she was born April 23rd of 1952. 21 days after her birth, Jacqueline was found by her mother vomiting and blue. Cause of death was attributed by the coroner to aspiration of vomitus. An autopsy was reportedly performed, but the notes are missing, and an actual internal examination may not have been done. Again, a police inquest was supposedly held, but no notes are available. That's another trend, obviously. We're now on baby number three, and we're already finding that proper documentation is not available if it was ever made in the first place. Baby number four was Arthur Jr., and he was born April 23rd of 1955. This time, only 12 days after his birth, he was found by Marie having difficulty breathing. She brought him to the hospital where he was assessed to be healthy and they were discharged. The next day, Marie, who was home alone, again, found Arthur Jr. not breathing and called for an ambulance. He was brought to the hospital but was dead on arrival. The cause of death was attributed by the coroner to bronchopneumonia. A standard autopsy was completed here. Baby number five was Constance, born February 24th of 1958. Constance was born with conjunctivitis. One of the doctors treating Constance remembers speaking to Marie. He informed Marie that he would be helping with the baby's care. Allegedly, Marie said, what's the use? She's going to die just like all the others. This is baby five. A couple weeks later, Arthur came home to find Constance lifeless in her crib. Marie was upstairs and claimed to have just walked away for a moment. The cause of death was withheld by police and the Office of the Medical Examiner for a 45-day investigation because the parents had lost four other children. One of the investigators quickly decided that the on-scene diagnosis of aspiration of vomitus was wrong. She believed that the vomit wasn't the cause of death, but more likely the result of death. Baby number six is Letitia, and she was delivered stillborn at 39 weeks due to a knotted cord. Baby number seven was Mary Lee, and she was born June 19, 1962. Dr. Columbus Gangamy, the family's new doctor, later told investigators that Marie called him sometimes four or five times a day asking his advice and complaining that Mary was getting on her nerves and she couldn't take all that crying. Mary put Marie down for a short time, in air quotes, and when she returned, the child was gasping for breath and was turning blue. Marie called for an ambulance and Mary was brought to the hospital dead on arrival. The police took Arthur and Marie in for questioning. They were interrogated and then released. The official cause of death for Mary was announced as undetermined rather than the previous undetermined presumed natural. Baby number eight is Teresa, who Marie apparently never saw. She died in the hospital after only six hours and 39 minutes of life. The cause of death was attributed by the medical examiner to a blood disorder, congenital hemorrhagic diathesis. Definitely botched that. Baby number nine is Catherine Ellen now, and she's the one who luckily got to live longer. She was born. Is that lucky, though? I, I was I, just I, thinking, like, I was lucky. Like, right. It's, I mean, 
We'll talk about Catherine. So she was born December 3rd of 1964. At this point, the doctors were taking no chances. Like I said, Catherine was baby number nine. And they kept her in the hospital for three months, even though she was perfectly healthy. They were just basically trying to keep her safe, which is awful. At that point, why wouldn't you think, like, somebody got to stop this? We can't let these fucking people have these well, kids so anymore. We'll talk about this later, but unfortunately, there was not a lot of direct evidence to to really, like, link Murray to any of the causes of death, unfortunately. Good girl. Aside from, hey, this seems weird, you know, like, anyone... You're right. I mean, they did what they could, but they could have done more, in my opinion. But so she was given every sort of possible diagnostic test. They were just stalling for time. In early spring of 1965, Catherine was released home. They couldn't really. On August 31st of that year, Marie called Dr. Gangami, claiming to have discovered Catherine in her crib choking on a plastic dry cleaning bag, the ones that go over the clothes. Can you imagine being this doctor, doing everything you can to make sure this baby doesn't die, and then all of a sudden, right after she's released home, something goes wrong? He questioned Marie, the doctor, and he said, how could an eight-month-old baby get a hold of a large sheet of plastic off of a suit hanging in the closet? It's not like they placed it over her crib and she grabbed it. It was in the closet. Marie replied that she didn't know, but it was fortunate that she found her in time. Dr. Gangami told Marie to take Catherine to the hospital. Arthur was questioned about the incident later, and he said the suit wasn't hanging in a closet, but on a bar he had put between the two side walls in the room because there was a lack of storage space, which still didn't explain and probably made it even more unlikely that it could have been within baby Catherine's reach. Though Catherine did survive, she was kept in the hospital as a precaution for five weeks. So again, my personal opinion here is they're stalling. Again, they unfortunately have to send her home. Six weeks after she was home, Marie called the rescue squad, claiming that the child had gone limp in her arms. That's a quote. Luckily, Catherine survived whatever this instance was, but was kept in the hospital for three weeks. So anytime they can keep her, they're trying to keep her, to keep her safe. A week and a half after she was released that time, Catherine was brought back to the hospital again after having what Marie called a spell. Dr. Gangami later reported that the baby would cry terribly on admission to the hospital and would act as if she was badly frightened. She would cry very hard whenever anyone came near her and there seemed to be nothing physically wrong with her that would explain the distress. My interpretation of that is she's fearful of everyone. You're coming near her, and that's enough to scare her. Catherine would calm down in about 48 hours, as if she gradually came to know she had nothing to fear from anyone at the hospital. She never had a spell or any other symptoms while she was in the hospital. Dr. me later told investigators that he hoped Catherine might survive until her fingernails grew long enough so she would have a chance to defend herself. What? Sounds like the African safari. Like, right. And until like, they develop clothes of their own. Like. Right. He clearly knows that she's not safe. The hospital clearly knows that she's not safe. And it's like, why can't we do more? Our pattern we've been having here. They held Catherine for three over three weeks at the hospital. Ten days after she was released... While Marie was home alone, she found Catherine having what she described as a slight seizure. Two weeks after that, Marie was finishing laundry 
and came to check on Catherine, who was napping on her stomach in her playpen. Marie found that she was turning blue. She said she tried to give the child oxygen, but her tongue was between her teeth and her jaw set tight. She called Dr. Gamey, who made a house call and could find no reason for Catherine's reported condition. He prescribed an anti-seizure medication. On the morning of February 25th, 1966, Marie was again doing laundry when she found Catherine unconscious in her playpen. She ran to the neighbor who drove Marie and Catherine to the hospital, and unfortunately, Catherine was announced dead on arrival. Officers of the medical examiner came to the house to check things out. Arthur admitted to the officers that it must naturally look suspicious, but he insisted that he was never, he had never even entertained the slightest doubt about his wife. The official cause of death was undetermined again, but no mention of presumed natural as with some of the other children. Baby number 10 was Arthur Joseph No, and he was born on July 28th of 1967. Because of Marie's previous C-section and other health conditions, the obstetric surgeon said that there was a strong possibility he might have to perform an emergency hysterectomy. Marie gave her consent, and in fact, he did need to remove her uterus in order to save her life. Thank Jesus, is my note there. Little Artie, as he was called, was in the hospital for two months. During that time, Marie and Arthur visited him twice. So your newborn child is in the hospital for two months, and you come twice. One month after his release, Marie, who was home alone, said that while she was feeding little Artie, something must have gone down the wrong way, and he began choking and turning blue. Just keeps coming up with, like, kids don't, I mean, yeah, Sure, mistakes, accidents happen, but like kids don't just die. Right. Well, it's like right. they're turning blue. They're not breathing. And yeah, like, like any of excuse. Oh, man. So by the time that he was brought to the hospital, little Artie was already recovering. He was kept in the hospital for 19 days, during which Arthur did not visit and Marie only visited once to discuss a bill. About two weeks after he was released, so we're going to breathe before we talk about, you know, kind of what happened next year. So Arthur, a little already, had his choking incident, which he recovered from, and then it was two weeks after he was released from the choking incident is when the rescue squad took him in and he was DOI. Within hours of Artie being brought to the hospital, investigators were at the no home, reading the couple their rights. Arthur later stated that they had a line detector test done and then they let them go home. And that's all we ever heard from them. Even if the Nose didn't hear from investigators, they were working on the case diligently. In the meantime, the medical examiner was telling the press that there was nothing suspicious about the 10 dead babies of Marie and Arthur now. Dr. Joseph Spellman says he found absolutely no evidence indicating it unnatural. So that was a quote from Dr. Joseph Spellman in Newsweek on January 15th of 1968 in what would become, for 30 years, the last published word on the case. That's what I mentioned at the top of the episode. For 30 years, obviously there was suspicion. Maybe in somebody's spare time, they're looking back on this case, but nothing came to fruition. Many feel that Spellman held a different opinion about the case, but couldn't back it up. So even though this whole thing was definitely sus, there was never any evidence that could link Marie to any of the murders. An interesting note of the seven no children who actually came home from the hospital, there was evidence that at least six had been insured. The first few for only $100, but baby number four and then going forward, they all had policies of over $1,000. 
And those obviously sound like small amounts, but this was in, we're talking like, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s. So sentencing, this is a doozy. A Philadelphia Magazine article came out. This case came back to the light. In August of 1998, Marie was charged with six counts of first-degree murder. She was 70 at the time of the sentencing. So the six was because the two children, Letitia, who was a stillborn, and then Teresa, who died after six hours and 39 minutes because of um, blood disorder, Marie was not charged for their murder. So that's why, um, or no, I'm sorry, that would be eight. Eight of the ten. Arthur, who was not home at the time of the deaths, was not charged because as I tried to make prominent note of, Marie was, you know, home with the children when all this stuff went down. This case to me had similar vibes to David Kennedy, which if you haven't listened to that episode, check it out, because Marie and her husband were living their lives for 30 some years after the death of their last child. No consequences at all. In theory, after a certain time, you have to think you're getting away with something. A plea agreement was reached in which Marie admitted to eight counts of second-degree murder. So she was originally charged with first-degree murder charges, and they dropped it to second-degree murder charges. She was sentenced in June of 1999 to 20 years of probation with the first five years under house arrest. I repeat that to, to clarify that Marie did not spend a single day in jail. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. She was sentenced to 20 years of probation. And the first five years of those 20 years were under house arrest. She was 70, right? 70. I mean, that kind of explains it. But zero? Well, I think the reason why the charges were dropped from first degree to second degree is because they couldn't, like... Could lick or anything, right? Right. Aside yeah. from the general suspicion of all 10 of your fucking children don't. But I was going to say, at the, so we have these questions, yeah. right? At three kids, I'm saying something. A lot I'm, I'm going to these people directly and being like, are you fucking killing your kids? Are you having these kids just well, so to kill them? Another thing to note, the first child was born in 1949. Yeah. I mean, so, so you're like, looking at it. This is a gap. Right. And so you have to think too, like, were, did people really think that that was even an option, you know? Back that's then, I'm probably like, oh, this is so sad. Well, that's why I pointed out the article from Life magazine was in 1963 and it was sympathetic. It was like, oh my gosh, this family has all their, you know, at that point it was only six children. It was just a tragedy, you know, that's, Yeah. But so this this is another thing that really pissed me off. As a condition of the plea agreement, Marie agreed to a psychiatric study. Researchers hoped, as we were just talking about earlier, that they would identify the cause of why did she kill her children. The study never happened. What? The study never happened. Nope. There was no follow-up. I, I, I don't know. Oh. Balls were dropped. Oh. Like a 12-year-old who just hit a soprano to alto. Yeah. And... So, that's Marie Dunn, you guys. Isn't that crazy? I, I'm blown away. Yeah. Ten kids, dude. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated case. I know. Like that, yeah. I mean, that's what brought it back into the limelight. If if these other things didn't happen, they might, Marie could have just continued to live her life because there was, 
the book, the 1997 book, The Death of Innocence, was, wasn't about Marie, but it just kind of stirred up interest again. And then the 1998 article in the Philadelphia Magazine. So, and it's called Cradle to Grave. Maybe that's what we'll call this episode. Oh, that's definitely. Cradle to Grave. Cradle to Grave. And shout out to, to Stephen Fried of the Philadelphia Magazine because he blew Marie's shit up. So, discussion questions, y'all. Do we consider the nose serial killers? Were they doing this intentionally, having innumerable kids and killing them for pleasure? Or was this a case of Munchausen by proxy? I'm going to say, yeah, I consider them serial killers. This whole thing seems contrived to me. Every time a kid dies, they're just like, oh, yeah, she got one of some plastic. Or, oh, yeah, they had a really rare condition. And none of it seems plausible to me. Ten kids? You lose two kids in the same couple years. And I'm like, dude, are you guys really fit to be parents? Like, two kids died from un non-medical related conditions to me you're doing something you're something's hanky something's hanky but so do you think they were having the kids to kill them or it was just kind of like i, I don't know if they didn't i i don't know i guess or was it for attention like munchausen by proxy they liked right. the notoriety of oh this is a grieving mother oh like her kid's so sick oh you're and dying fucking times <laughs> that happens that's what and- my- that's what I'm telling it. Oh, look, dude. Number three, I feel terrible for you. That sucks. I've had a few friends who lost kids in the last year. Not like kids were born, but like we're supposed to have kids and they either had a stillborn or a miscarriage. And it's terrible. It's a heart-wrenching, awful experience. And all of them have, who I have talked to or have read about from, through posts, have said that and shared that experience. Dude, this woman and these people, I should say, I will just hold her accountable. These people were doing it like it was a fucking business. They were like, well, it's right around the 14-month mark. We should probably kill this one and have the next one. They weren't even, like, overlapping, though. That's what I think was so sad about Catherine, the one one who got to have a longer life, is like... Yeah. She lived to be, what, over a year? Yeah. Or two months? Yeah, but in the year and two months, Brady tried to kill her, like, six times. But that's why I'm saying is that Munchausen by proxy because that is intentionally making your kids sick to gain or killing yeah. them to get the sympathies. Is that the reason they did this? Or were they sadistic killers who just like to kill babies? You know, what? which way do we think it rolls? Uh, I think they're, I mean, I grant you that like media was different back then. So maybe... Because Munchausen by proxy was coined in like 15 something, 1570 something. That's something we could do a whole like deep dive. Yeah, that that would be like a folly to do. Yeah, 1720 to 1797 is when the term was coined. And then in 1951, it was coined as like a, a term for doing like harm for notoriety or for sympathy or whatever the fuck. But yeah, there's a lot of cases. Gypsy Rose Blanchard we have to do. There's a lot of cases. There's one that's really, really crazy that it just broke. It was really, really sad. Where this mom obviously killed her kid, but like they went on the same shit as Gypsy, but like Gypsy got the upper hand. We'll talk about her. What culpability do we think Arthur Sr. has? And what about the other people involved? The hospital workers, their one specific doctor, you know, 
at, at a certain point, you have to kind of question. You can't just have a sympathetic approach. You have to question. So what do you think about that? Who else has culpability? I'm about to say, I think Arthur Sr. for sure. He clearly knew what was going on. Like, do you think he was like, if I say something, she's going to kill me too? And so he just kept quiet? Maybe, but honestly, I, I can't see that. I mean, you had to willingly participate, at least in some capacity, bro, right? Like, you were part of this whole thing. At least out of it. Not necessarily. That like, goes back to question. Like, bro, after three kids, if you lose another kid, I'm looking at you like, we ain't doing this anymore. This is, we fucked this up. Okay, let's get a dog. Let's start with maybe a fish and work our way up. No more children because we fucking suck at this. That's me if I'm not part of it. I think he's part of it. And I don't think it goes back to Munchausen by proxy. I think it's a fact that these people found out they liked killing and they found out they had very easy victims. So I do think who else is culpable, though? Who at the fucking hospital was like, here she is again. Well, but that's like they did. Ninth and tenth child. Well, it sounds like they, they did eventually, tried. yeah. They kind of were like, unfortunately, the hospital can't hold the baby forever, but there should have been measures. Where the fuck was CPS? Where the yeah. fuck were any kind of authority? Anybody. Well, they certainly tried, and I think. Um, like, like, they can't hold the baby forever. They can't, like, kidnap the baby. The, ho the hospital can't, like, suddenly raise your kid. Yeah. Yes, that's my job as a nurse. And I think about it. Should it leave the uh, emergency hysterectomy? It happened way too late. Was way too late. Yeah. Because that could have... Way too late. Prevented a lot. That's what I'm saying. I, I, like, where were their families? There's just a lot of people missing from the story that doesn't really seem to add up. Yeah, that's true. But I don't... Personally, I don't know if I think Arthur Sr. has culpability. I think after the fifth one, he should have stopped reproducing with this woman. But I do think he could have been caught up in it. And maybe he was so desperate to have a baby that, like, he, he really thought... Maybe they really did die. You know, they're just the most unlucky people in the world. I could totally see that your emotions getting like super caught up in it. I know my parents tried forever to have a second kid. That's why I'm here. It took them four years to be able to try, realize it wasn't working, have IVF fail. Then they went to adoption. So like maybe he genuinely thought like we're just having sick babies. And especially if the hospital's not picking up on it, yeah. you would trust them. You would, they, if they're not thinking your wife's killing your kids, why the fuck would you? Well, you would just think like, shit, it is terrible. At least, at least once, I feel like it was twice, to question. So again, you have to trust. Like if the police aren't holding, mm -hmm. them, yeah. they're letting this go. And like, I live with this. So maybe she had this Richard Kuklinski. Maybe she had this secret double life that I didn't know of. When I started with her babies, she was good with them. They were happy. And then all of a sudden, they die unexplainably. No one's saying it's murder. Right. Maybe he really didn't know. Or maybe he was culpable. Maybe he was like, let's keep having babies to kill them. But I think from most of these cases, because again, this has happened many times with multiple babies, like seven, eight, nine, ten babies found in storage bins and yeah. garages. A lot of the cases, at least that I've read up on, the, the spouse legitimately had no idea. Yeah. They genuinely did not know what was going on, which seems unbelievable. Yeah. But it I don't think he happened. was culpable enough to be charged with anything. I mean, they they barely were able to charge Marie. Or, yeah, so she they didn't have kid. Or like, think about Ted Bundy's girlfriend. She had a kid. Totally aloof. I mean, like, yeah, like Ted was this nice guy. But that's what I mean is like, you would think something so obvious that like he's missing at night. Blah, blah, blah. My reality is I'm watching my wife feed my children and lay with that right so when I go to sleep. Right. Like, oh, there's an accident. And sure, he probably should have red flags a thousand percent. That's what I'm At some point, if he didn't know. 
But maybe if you're just blinded by love and desperation. I'm telling you, there have been crazier things that have happened. It's the number for me. It's the sheer volume. Like, if we talk about Joseph Fritzl, he held his fucking daughter in their basement for 24 years and convinced his wife that she ran away and dropped off his baby with her on their doorstep and she was really locked in a dungeon in their basement. Like, shit happened. 24 years. Yeah, I think he could (laughs) have. That leads into the next question. Should there be laws in place to prevent this from happening again? And is this an argument of forced sterilization or control burdening rates of people like this? There are laws that are being trying to put in place. And there's duty to act, duty to respond. I'm learning all about it right now. I was going to say that this would be a question for you. But like, is there a law that says... If you look at the system that's set to protect these kids, it's a very fucking broken system. So it's like, okay, yeah, we have this system, but what do they do? You know what I mean? It's like you have to be dangling from the war for them to do anything. And And even then, where do they put you in more abusive situations? How should they enforce it too? It's like, how do we know who's really doing this our cps system is hella broken there hella broken but i think the argument for forced sterilization is interesting for this kind of situation because i guess it's the idea like can i mean she's 70 so she doesn't even matter at that point but if she was younger can you rehabilitate someone like that or is this just a irredeemable monster and i think in her case she's an irredeemable monster but like yeah i agree if you think of the other cases where it's only like two kids or right that right it's like where's they want to be right five babies what's that how do we i think if the study that was supposed to have been done was actually done um we could have maybe found information that would have been helpful i keep circling back to was she having babies so she could I feel like there's plenty of people. If, like, if you have a murderous rage, there's plenty of people out there for you to kill. Why are you bringing new people into It's like not a of your body. Do you think, I, that's why I think it's back to Munchausen. Right. That's I think actually, she yeah. likes being the grieving mother. The right. Like, because people wrote articles about her. Yeah. People wrote books about her. She loved that attention. And that's why, to me, instead of her being like a serial killer, it was more people are feeling sorry for me and I'm being lifted up with that sorrow. Right. I've been Brilliant. doing this so long that I'm under the Unless she was under some sort of serious... That's like, why I think it's much housed, at least partially, because I don't believe she would bring in babies just to immediately... I don't think so. Unless she was under some sort of serious psychosis that, like, for some reason went diagnosed for however many years, at least 10. That's why I think Munchausen would be the sentence that makes sense. A lot of things need to change with our justice system because we're, like Matt said a hundred times, ten kids. Like that's inexcusable. How? And the fuck? I believe you know, I said it was ten. Yeah. Ten. Ten. That's just gonna be the opening of the show. Ten. Ten. Come on, bro. I think we can all sleep a little bit sounder knowing that Marie has since passed away. She died in um, May of 2016. Of course she did. That was. She would have been 88, so it was about I mean, a little less than 20 years after she was um, sentenced. Damn, it looks like... My damn, bro. In September 2001, a study filled with the court, which filed with the court, stated Noah suffering from mixed personality disorder with avoidant, dependent, narcissistic, histrionic, borderline, paranoid, and antisocial features. What? What? They were just like, she's everything, oh, fuck it. She's got it all, dude. They just went through now. Yeah, they're just like, this one looks good. This one looks good. This one looks good. So I for now talk about it. Let's 
There's absolutely no way this was a. Um, Can we hear this? Hell no. Hell no. Oh, I like that. You held that real. That was real, great. Real strong. That was great. The oldest baby would have been 71 this year, and the youngest would have been 53. Well, yeah, I don't think Ivor and I was met. I think after baby number two, she should have been next. Next from the world. No more babies. Although, I guess you can still technically have babies in prison. Harder, but you can do it. Cut off her balls. I think that was a great case. Unfortunately, it's very sad that there's a lot. Like, it, real quick, did you guys hear of the of the teenager girl who had a baby and threw it in a trash can and saw on video and then dumpster divers found the baby alive? crying and, and they like have video surveillance of this girl throwing the baby into like literally like you would thought it was trash it was a baby she puts a baby in a bag of trash but put the baby in a trash bag so the ba baby itself was in a trash bag in a bag of trash literally tossed over like the video is sickening you can't see anything obviously but just knowing a baby's in there but they found it the baby was fine miraculously six hours in this dumpster by itself in the freezing fucking cold and just random dumpster divers Found this baby. Um, imagine? No, but what it made me think about is how many times that happens and people don't catch it because those dumpster divers were just there at the right time. The baby was crying, almost frozen to death, and they were literally just by a random dumpster behind a building. But, like, how many dead babies or dead people do you think are in dumpsters? That would be, like, that will never know. Yeah. Like, you ever think about that? I listened to a case today on podcast where the girl's body was never recovered and the guy that killed her said he put her in trash bags and threw her in the, his like apartment complex dumpster, never found her. Like think about the number of bodies that are in a landfill. And like baby body. Like what if Marino was a little smarter, a little wiser? Well, see, that was something that struck me too in this case because she... Munchausen. Yeah, it's gotta be because she didn't like silently like let the babies die. Like she brought them to the hospital. At least two of them were DOA. I think it was more than that. So yeah. like, it has to be something like that. Noticed you don't bring your children to the hospital. Yeah, you know to publicize their death. Yeah, well, really very sad case, but it it, it was a good one. I literally had knew nothing about her. Well, and it goes back to see something, say something. I I'm with Madam Jones saying that like somebody somewhere, and it, the doctor was one of them. He or the nurses or whoever the fuck it was, they were like, we don't want to give this baby back to the mom. Right? They, what can we they do? They were concerned enough that they ran diagnostics and did all this like stalling, and it makes and me sick. About the baby's heart, like jumpy when it saw yeah. its mom. Yeah, I maybe because she was young enough, she couldn't focus her. Like she would be yeah. a while. Was scared that anyone approached her. I'm basically sick. That was a tough one, one that I had never heard of. And my goal is to try to cover some other local Philadelphia movies. Should do a Pittsburgh and Philly series on. Thank you guys for joining us today on another very sad episode of Eye for an Eye podcast. Let us know what you guys think. Was this a case of a serial killer just gone rogue with her babies? Or was this a case of Munchausen by proxy? Was she doing this for attention? Why didn't someone step up sooner? What more could have been done? And what can we do to prevent this from going forward? Like, in the future? Yeah. We want to know all your thoughts because this is a really thought-provoking case. It is. Sure is. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your fam. 
Join us. Let us know what cases you guys want to hear about. We want to hear them too. Yeah, with us or bumps us around to tell us what to do. We're yeah. Here. We love being used and abused. Now, good night, everybody. Yeah, everyone. All right. Bye.